Ephesians chapter 6 that we are continuing our study through the book of Ephesians and the theme through the whole book has been the body life, the body life which is again the body of Christ and the life that that body is to have in Christ. We're going to look at verses 17 through 18. We're kind of overlapping from our study from last Sunday and and this one is going to overlap a little bit into when we finish it, uh, Lord willing, next Sunday. But we're going to look at the helmet and the sword, verses 17 through 18. We touched a bit on the helmet and the sword last week as we finished and went through the whole armor of God. But there's a lot more to elaborate on in verses 17 through 18 about, again, the helmet and the sword. We covered last week, as I said, the girdle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes shod with the gospel of peace, and the shield of faith. So let's pick up this morning in verse 17a, the first part. And it says, And take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. The Roman soldier wore a bronze helmet with a leather, leather strap on it. And he carried his helmet over his right shoulder or on his, on the right, on his uh, girdle until he had put it on for battle. Now he was never without his helmet. He never went into battle without first putting it on. What are the most two vulnerable targets on your body? The heart and the head. A blow to either one could be fatal. And the way this applies to the believer is that the helmet of salvation protects your mind from the attacks of the enemy. Salvation requires thinking. Isaiah 1, 18 and 19 says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. The word reason meaning to decide or convince or judge. And in order to be saved, you have to change your mind about sin and God. That's what repentance is. Real repentance isn't just a feeling of regret. It's changing your mind completely about your sins and what God has to say about them. We hate that we sinned, And we hate the sins that we sinned. And when we change our minds, then our life is going to change as well. So the Christian life starts with a changed mind. Like Paul said in Romans 12, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 16, he says, we have the mind of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that we're infallible. And it doesn't mean we start playing God in the lives of other people. Nobody instructs God. To have the mind of Christ means to look at life from the Savior's point of view. That is, having His values and His desires in mind. It means to think God's thoughts and not to think as the world thinks. And in order to grow and mature as a Christian, we have to understand the Word of God which gives the victory. So there has to be a change in the way we think about sin, God, and his word. The, uh, the reason that, that some Christians aren't experiencing victory in their lives is because they don't have the right way of thinking. They're not wearing the helmet of salvation, which means they're not thinking like a Christian. They're not thinking God's thoughts. God speaks to us through his word. And, and many times, you know, how can you say God speaks to me if you're not reading his word? Because he speaks through his word. God speaks to us through his word. And that's how we come to know his mind and his thoughts. 
We resist the bad thoughts and attitudes when we wear the helmet of salvation. It keeps us from being double-minded, as James says. It helps us to stay loyal and single-minded, focused and on target. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. So the helmet of salvation helps us to keep our minds from being deceived. The helmet stops tons of doubt that Satan puts into our mind. Satan loves to mislead us. And he loves it when you're deceived and, you're, and you'll have doubt. Jesus said, don't have an anxious mind in Luke 12, 29. Doubt causes worry. It causes anxiety and it causes distrust. And too many Christians live in a world of anxiety, in a world of worry. They're always worried about something. And a lot of the times, it's something that they have no control over. It's something that hasn't happened. It's something they think is going to happen or might happen. And when you begin to think, worry into the future, you're trespassing because that's God's territory. God holds the future. He controls the future. So, again... Their minds are just filled with, with all kinds of doubts and worries. Matt, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 34, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. Philippians 4, 6, Paul said, Be anxious for nothing. Psalm 37, verse 8 says, Don't fret. Don't fret. Do not fret. It causes only harm. And it's a command of God. Do not fret. Being a, a command of God, that means it's possible to do so. Because his command is our enablement. It's wrong to have a doubting mind. Because God takes care of us and he watches over us. And Jesus tells us not to worry about our life. Jesus never gave a command that wasn't good for us. He never gave a command that would hurt us. And Jesus will never lead us to a place where his grace can't keep us. Satan loves for us to believe that God can't take care of all of our needs. Because, you see, that's when Satan gets the victory. Discouragement is another tactic of the devil. The helmet of salvation can help to stop discouragement. The helmet of salvation is the hope of salvation. But you see, when you lose your hope, you lose the battle. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. That's one of those promises we don't like to underline. But he says, you will have tribulation. But he says, here's the good news. Here's the encouragement. Be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. When you look at your battle, the circumstances that you're, you're suffering under or experiencing, you say, man, this is too big for me. Or this is too many. Or this is too much. I can't possibly beat this thing. And guess what? You'll give up and you'll go down in flames. Jeremiah 32, 27, is there anything too hard for me, God says? The defeat comes from the inside. You see, if you're going to win, you can't give up inside. You have to know and say in your heart, my God is mighty, great, and awesome, and my God is going to see me through this thing. Because as Paul said in Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus said, with, with it, I'm sorry, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible, Mark 10, 27. Ephesians 3, 20, he's able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. 
Psalm 50, uh, Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Nehemiah, he told the leaders and all the people who were discouraged by the enemy's opposition, he said in Nehemiah 4, 14, he says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Real faith takes into account more than what you're going through at the moment. Never judge God's faithfulness and abilities based on what you see or how you feel. Feelings can mess up your mind. Feelings can cloud your judgment and they can cloud your vision. Don't let feelings make decisions for you. And there are times when feelings have no rational foundations. You feel great one day, you feel horrible the next, a bad mood, nothing in between happened that would, that would do that. A person's actions or circumstances can create your feelings. You can let somebody create your feelings. Warren Wiersbe said something here that was really, really good, and, and we see it today. Our modern education system emphasizes feelings and self-esteem over logical thinking and reasoning. Sometimes how you feel depends on where you look. Your feelings are directly associated with your thoughts. We see that in Mark 14, 72. And it says, a second time the rooster crowed. And then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, Peter, you will deny me three times. And it says, and when he thought about it, he wept. You see, his feelings were directly associated with his thoughts. When he thought about what Jesus said, he, he began to weep. Remember, God is greater than your circumstances. He's greater than the feelings that you have. And that's why we have biblical principles and guidelines to keep us from being ruled and led by our emotions. Remember, David beat the giants in his life not because he fought well. He believed well. Real hope isn't a life of, I hope so, keep my fingers crossed. It's a life of, I know so. Real hope is an unchanging and steady confidence in God's promises and in his sovereignty. Listen to 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, not that you may feel it but that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. 1 John 3, 18 and 19. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. You want assurance? Know what the word of God says. 1 John 2 says no. you find the word no 11 times. 1 John 3, the word no is found nine times. 1 John 4, the word no is found four times. In 1 John, the word no is found eight times. In 3 John, the word no is found one time, a total of 33 times. You know why? God wants you to know. He wants you to know what he says and stand upon what he says, what you know. 
The reason Christians get so discouraged in battle is because they forget the wonderful hope that they have in Jesus. And you know, I don't know that we really forget. Maybe some do, but we neglect the word. We ignore the word. We don't really you know, feast upon the word or pay attention to the word. They're not looking, this is it, they're not looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We forget or we ignore that Jesus is coming to save us, to take us to glory. So we start walking by faith, by sight, and by our feelings, and not by faith, and taking our eyes off of God. We start looking around. We see how big the problem is. We see how many obstacles are in the way. We see how hard it's going to be to get through the, through the, uh, the, 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 the difficulty that we're having. So what happens, we just stop dead in our tracks. We don't go any further. We give in to our feelings, and we just kind of give up. Just give up. You see, this is the way that so many Christians live on their feelings, and they give in to their feelings. I don't feel like going to church tonight. I don't feel like, like reading today. I don't feel like praying this morning. I don't feel like saying I'm sorry. I don't feel that I can love him or her anymore. On and on it goes. And we never rise above our feelings. It's interesting how we don't allow our feelings to rule over other areas of our life. You know, how many times on Monday morning when you say, I, I just don't feel like going to work. You go anyway, don't you? Well, I'm not going to have a check if I keep this up. Mothers, mothers with young babies. And that baby calls at 2 in the morning. And you know it needs to be changed, it needs to be fed. You don't feel like getting up. Who would feel like getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning to do that? But you know that's what's the best thing for that child. You don't allow your feelings to take over and not do what's best in the moment. So again, we can control our feelings. It's what we choose to control our feelings about. You see, is our life with Christ supposed to be based on, on life of feelings? Obviously not. When you don't feel like going to church, it's when you need to be there. When you don't feel like reading and praying, that's what you have to do, need to be doing the most. But when we start giving in to our feelings, then we start to listen to what other people say. And before you know it, guess what? Your mind and your spirit is bummed out. It's discouraged. And it starts to think worldly thoughts. And when you take off the helmet of salvation, you can't lift up your head. Hey, God's the lifter of our heads. Then we can only hang down in discouragement and defeat. And the psalmist said in Psalm 110.7, Therefore he shall lift up the head. The answer to our discouragement is to let God lift up our head and securely put the helmet of salvation back on our head. Then we can stand. And then the devil won't be able to get into our heads and rob us of the inheritance that we have in Christ. You know, if you look at God through your circumstances, he'll seem so small, he'll seem so far away, so unable to do anything. But if you look at your circumstances by faith through God, he'll draw very near to you and he re he'll reveal his greatness to you. You see, the enemy is always using his weapons of division, deception, doubt, fear, 
and discouragement to defeat us. And boy, he does a really good job. But when we decide to take a stand and fight to the end, then Satan won't be able to divide our thoughts and our faithfulness. When we believe the word of God, the enemy cannot deceive us. When we stand on God's promises and we rejoice in the hope that we have in our salvation, we're not going to be overwhelmed by doubts and discouragement. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10 and 5, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing, that is, every anti-God viewpoint that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What did Paul tell us earlier in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11? He said, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. So again, we see the, the, the purpose of the helmet of salvation is to protect our mind from the, from the thoughts, the wrong thoughts, the doubts, the discouragement, the fear that Satan loves to put into our head. Now look at the second part of verse 17. Take on the helmet of salvation and notice, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So up to now, we've looked at just defensive equipment in the armor of God which we need to protect ourselves in battle. But the soldier would not be very effective if he didn't have the weapon to attack and defend himself against the enemy. It's like a soldier. He puts on his his defensive gear. He puts on his flak vest. He puts on his helmet. He's got his ammo belt. He's got all the things that he needs to go out to battle. But if he left without his rifle, not going to do him much good. And that's what Paul's talking about here. We have the, 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 the defensive Uh, uh, armor, but then we need the offensive as well, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In the same way, as I said, the Christian in the midst of a battle needs to have a weapon against the devil. And God has given us one. He's given us the most powerful weapon in the universe. For the Word of God is living, and powerful, and sharper than uh, a two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. God compares his word to a sword. And the sword that Paul is talking about here is a short, straight sword. And it was used for for close-in combat, like hand-to-hand almost. Sometimes the enemy attacks from a distance. And that's what we looked at last time about the fiery darts. Satan throws those fiery darts from everywhere and all angles, and you can't see them, you can't hear them coming. And so here, there are times when Satan moves in for the kill. And we have to fight them hand to hand. And the only way we can resist his attacks is by attacking with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I think one of the best examples, if not the best example of what Paul says here, is when Jesus battled Satan in the Judean desert in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. It says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Notice who led him into the wilderness. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus was beginning to to start his ministry and and it was the Spirit who led him into the wilderness to be tested. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil after Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry. The tempter came to him and he said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And he answered and said, Jesus said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Notice that Jesus used the sword of the Spirit. 
Then the devil took him uh, to the holy city, set him on top of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash, dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him a second time, It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, he used the, the sword of the Spirit. Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The third time he used again the sword of the Spirit. And he defeated Satan at that particular testing. And it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. But he will be back. You can count on it. Matter of fact, further down in the same chapter, Luke 4.13, it says, And when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. He'll go away and he'll regroup and he'll come back again. James 4, 7 promises us that when we submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But many times our problem is we spend too much time talking with the devil and not resisting, not submitting to God. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Instead of Eve using the sword of the Spirit, which she's already had, God said, do not eat of the tree. She began to think about what Satan said. She began to entertain the thought, well, maybe God didn't say. Maybe God didn't really mean what he said. And maybe it's okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And as soon as, as she had disarmed herself with the word of God, she had nothing to, nothing to help her. She had no hope. These are people who say, you know, I do believe the Bible. <clears throat> you know, I, I study it. I, I try to live by it. But you know what? I still, get, I still get defeated. Now, why is that? Well, maybe you're trying to use the word of God, or the sword, all by itself. God wants us to use the sword, but he wants us to use it at the same time with the other pieces of armor that he's given us to win. We can't separate the sword from the other pieces of armor. But when we use God's word, we have to use it effectively. We can't use it apart from the Holy Spirit. God's word is the sword of the Holy Spirit. The word was inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches us the word of God. John 14, 26. The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. John 16, 13. The Holy Spirit brings back to remembrance the word of God when we need it. So see, if you're not reading it, what's the Holy Spirit going to bring back to remembrance? He gives us the power to live what we learn. The Holy Spirit gave us the sword of the Spirit. So we have to be careful to depend on the Holy Spirit as we use the word of God. The problem with a lot of Christians is they know a lot about the Bible. They think knowing it is enough to defeat the enemy. But the devil also knows how to quote scripture. He did that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 6, though he quoted it wrong. Anybody can quote the Bible. But we need, what we need is the power of the Holy Spirit to help us declare the word of God like Jesus did in the wilderness to be effective. We need to know how to use the Word of God. The Word of God shows what's in a heart. 
Only the Holy Spirit can know the thoughts and the intentions in us. As Hebrews 4.12 said, he is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So he can convict us of our sins by using the word of God. So without the Holy Spirit, the sword loses a lot of its power. Quoting the Bible isn't enough. We also have to read it every day, understand it, and know what it teaches. And we need the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We should memorize as much of Scripture as we can and meditate on it. But most of all, we need to obey it. In order for the sword of the Spirit to show its power, we need to obey it. Obey it. It first has to be an intimate part of our lives. We can't separate the sword, that is the word from the Holy Spirit. Just like we can't use the sword apart from the Holy Spirit. We can't separate the Spirit from the rest of the armor. It wouldn't be very smart, again, to carry the sword and not to wear the armor and, and not use the sword. But if we're not protected by the armor and using the power of the sword, we're wide open for the attack. The soldier of Jesus Christ has to have on the whole armor of God. Every part. And it has to be put on properly. It has to be uh, uh, secure in its place in order to stand against the enemy. Don't try to separate the sword. Again, that is the word from the rest of the armor. We are not to separate the sword of the spirit from the rest of the armor or from prayer. Look at verse 18 now. And praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Other places in the Bible show us that the Word of God and prayer are inseparable. Acts chapter 6, verse 4 says, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer, notice, and to the ministry of the Word. John 15, 7, Jesus said, if you abide in me, notice, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire. Ask with what prayer? My words abide in you, you pray, ask what you desire, it shall be done for you. God's word tells us what we need to know and prayer makes it possible to do. God's word shows us God's will. Prayer makes it possible for us to do his will. How can we expect God to answer our prayers if they're not according to his will? Exodus 17, we have a good illustration of this truth. While Joshua and the army was in the valley, remember fighting the Amalekites? Remember Moses was on top of the hill praying. So here's Joshua in the army. He's down fighting the Amalekites with their swords. Jesus is, uh, Moses is up on the, on the mountain with his hands raised up, and it says, while Moses' hands were raised, the, uh, Joshua and the army prevailed. Moses' prayer and Joshua's word, notice, worked together. The swords of Joshua's army in the valley wouldn't have done much good if it wasn't for Moses' uplifted arms on top of the, of the hill. So again, our battle against the enemy takes the word of God and prayer. I believe we have plenty of Bible, but not enough intercessory prayer today. You know, it seems that we put more emphasis on the Word of God than prayer. We need to bring the two together. We cannot separate the sword from prayer. And lastly, 
we can't separate the sword of the Spirit from praise, believe it or not, from praise. The Word of God, praising God, go together. Psalm 149, verse 5 and 6 points this out. Listen to what the psalmist said. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. Notice the word of God and praise. This is a picture of a singing army, and we are the army of Christ. We are soldiers of Christ. This particular psalm, it mentions the word aloud. I'm going to read some other scriptures. Notice how many times that word aloud is mentioned. In 2 Chronicles 20, we see this truth illustrated, again, about praise and the word of God being together. Remember, Jehoshaphat prayed for the Lord to go before them in battle. And then the Lord spoke through Jehaziel. And the Lord said through Jehaziel, Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. In other words, hey guys, I know there's a big enemy, enemy army in front of you. Don't be worried about these guys. Don't be dismayed about this great, uh, this great multitude before you because it says the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. You are not going to need to fight in this battle. He said, position yourselves and stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. After they heard this, the Levites praised, it says in verse 19, the Lord with loud voices, and I'm sorry, with the Lord with voices loud and high. The second time we hear the word loud. Then Jehoshaphat puts the worship team out in front of the army in 2 Chronicles 20, 21, and the enemy was defeated. That group of worshipers there probably sounded a lot different from many praise and worship groups today. I would have loved to hear that worship group in front of the army that brought victory to the people. A lot of times, it sounds like we're on the enemy's side. <laughs> rather than singing victory songs in our hearts. Psalm 51, 14, And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Psalm 59, 16, But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. Psalm 81, 1, Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful sound to the God of Jacob. Psalm 132, 16, And her, that is Israel's saints, shall sing aloud. What's that, five or six times? It emphasized singing aloud to the Lord. I love Nehemiah 12, 43. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and they rejoiced because God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. People from far away could hear God's people singing rejoicing and praising the Lord. We should wake this neighborhood up with singing. They should hear us singing in here in the morning. We need to stop giving worship that's weak, unexciting. Vince Havner said, we, we, we sing about the promises, but we're just standing on the premises. We're just standing. We're just going through the motions. 
though singing about the promises. If we can't sing loudly in praise to the God who has redeemed us in Jesus Christ and he's preparing us for heaven and he's preparing to come and to take us back, maybe it's because we really don't know God or the gospel at all. But if we do know him, hallelujah, man, and praise him. Do we ever wonder why our praise loses so much power? Because there's power in praise. We see it in the scriptures. Maybe it's because it's not connected to the word of God. Power is found in the word of God. Again, Hebrews 4.12. It's powerful, like a two-edged sword. And that's why our, our worship songs, our worship songs are to be based on scripture. There's a lot of so-called Christian songs who ha- that have no connection with the sword in our hands. Too many songs don't praise God. They praise the singer. Or they talk about some problem in life or what the singer is doing for God instead of what God has done for us. Today, people worship worship. Worship is critical, it's important. We see it in the scripture. But they choose to go to to a particular church because of the worship and not the teaching of the word of God. Psalm 149, 6 says, let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. Don't separate the word of God from praise. And then 2 Chronicles 20, 21 through 22, we see how that battle ended. It says, as they went out before the army and were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. It says, now when they began to sing and to praise the Lord, he set ambushes among the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were their enemies, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. They began to sing and praise the Lord, and the enemy was defeated. Prayer changes things, but praise also changes things because it reminds us to trust the one who gives us the victory. The word of God which we teach should be related to the praise songs that we sing. Again, our songs should be based on Scripture, on the Word of God, the living God. Our music should edify, edify rather than entertain. And if there's no message in the song, or the song doesn't light up with Scripture, then it's not the Word of God. It has no place in worship. If the words we sing don't express the doctrine that we believe, it's not a Christian song. Again, how can the Holy Spirit use a song that ignores or contradicts what he wrote in the Bible? So in closing, if one is filled with the Holy Spirit, that means they are controlled by the Word of God. So what should the evidence be that you are filled with the Holy Spirit? The believer should be joyful. You see Ephesians 5.19. Evidence that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you should be thankful, Ephesians 5.20. Evidence that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you should be submissive, Ephesians 5.21-25. So that's evidence that you're filled with the Spirit. What's the evidence that the believer is filled with the Word of God? Should be joyful, Colossians 3.16. Should be thankful, Colossians 3.17. Should be submissive, Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Notice, 
the spirit-filled believer and the believer that's filled with the word of God have the same characteristics. They're joyful, they're thankful, and they're submissive. It's hard to believe that a worshiper is filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, if their songs aren't filled with the word of God, and remember, God promised to bless his word, not our talents. He promised to bless his word, not our talents. Music is not a fill-in. Worship is not fill-in time. Worship does not start when the pastor gets up and begins to teach. It starts the minute the worship team comes up here and begins to sing, begins to lead us in worship. Music, like I said, isn't filler. It isn't filling time. It should encourage people to worship God and prepare their hearts for the receiving of the word of God. You know, if you say you're a Bible student, then you ought to love your worship songs. The worship songs put the high praises of God in your mouth while the Bible puts a two-edged sword in your hand. We have to use the sword of the Spirit along with the other pieces of armor that the Lord has given us for the victory. And again, we can't separate the sword of the Spirit from the Holy Spirit because He will guide us in our use of the Word of God. And we must not separate the sword of the, of the Spirit from the rest of the armor. And unless we're wearing all of the armor, the sword will not be effective. And we must not separate it from the power of praise. Both prayer and praise must go together with our use of the Word of God to guarantee victory. Just like it takes a soldier time to get used to using a sword and to value its usefulness, it will take us a lifetime to get acquainted with all the armor of God and to totally appreciate it. But you will find the sword of the Spirit to be our best weapon in defeating Satan. Father, we thank you so much for these, these two, two verses, God. Father, for the whole chapter on the armor, Lord. And Father, help us, God, to understand and to take it to heart and to apply it, God. Lord, help us to have a biblical worldview. A biblical view, I should say. A biblical view of your word, God. And not just our a human view. Not our own preconceived notions or ideas, God. And so, Lord, may we, again, take the inventory of our hearts. Father, may we match them to the word of God. Lord, may we see, are there areas of need in our life? And we know there are. Help us to be what you've called us to be, God, to do what you've called us to do for your glory and for our good, Lord. Father, we thank you for the offering we will receive today. Father, we thank you for another year, God, and how you've taken care of us, Lord. You've provided. You've been so generous, Lord. And Father, again, we just... We just can never say thank you enough, Lord. But we do thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.